Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ryan Muldoon, Director of the Philosophy, Politics, and Economic Program and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Buffalo. We will discuss his work on club goods and democracy. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm really so glad that uh, we made this connection through, through Barry Lamb to have this conversation. And I really enjoyed reading the, the papers that, that you sent me. Um, I wonder if you could kind of start this conversation by just kind of talking a little bit about what club goods are and how they're different from other kinds of goods. Sure. So clubs goods were, were, uh, theorized uh, first by James Buchanan, uh, and he was working to argue that contra economists like uh, Paul Samuelson, uh, who thought that there's kind of two kinds of goods, a a public good and a private good, uh, there's stuff in the middle. So private goods are are the normal things that we think of that's stuff in our houses, uh, stuff that have private ownership by a single individual or family unit or something like this. Uh, So your car, your house, uh, your laptop, all those sorts of things are private goods. Public goods at the other end are uh, things that are uh, provisioned by the state uh, and they are held in public trust in some way. And so uh, uh, there's uh, public goods like uh, military defense, or if we're relying on the strict economic definition of a public good, where it's uh, both non-excludable and non-rival, then we're thinking about stuff like the light from a lighthouse. Uh, where uh, you can't uh, only sell tickets to who gets to see the light from a lighthouse. If you're providing it to anybody, you're providing it to everybody. Uh, So that's the idea of excludability, where there's no way that you can stop someone from getting access to that good. Like breathing the air would be very hard to exclude people from being able to do. Uh, And likewise, a a public good is non-rival. Uh, which means that uh, me getting some doesn't take away from you getting some. So again, say military defense, uh, it's kind of awkward uh, to defend all the United States except for Cleveland. Uh, uh, if, you're def- if you're defending all of the United States, you're kind of defending all of the United States. Uh, uh, whereas with private goods, they are both uh, excludable and rival. Uh, if I have a phone in my pocket, I can keep you from getting it, uh, and my iPhone means one less iPhone for you. Uh, same with, you know, slices of bread or chairs or whatever. Uh, normal private goods have that feature that they're excludable and they're rival. Uh, whereas public goods are those things that don't have uh, either of those features. And generally, we see states providing those things. Uh, sometimes uh, some other entity does it. But in general, uh, economists view public goods as things that the market is bad at supplying because the person paying for it can't capture the benefits. Uh, so those are the usual extremes. Uh, and Buchanan was interested in this stuff in the middle uh, where it's not a single person providing the good, uh, but uh, some uh, collection of people. And so these are club goods uh, or also sometimes called local public goods. So these are things where 
uh, you can kind of make up a way of making things uh, uh, rival and excludable at some uh, rate. So think of things like a public pool. Uh, you can uh, fence it off. Uh, so only people that are a member uh, of the pool can enjoy it. But uh, until quite a few, few people start piling into the pool, uh, it's not the case that one person's enjoyment of the pool prevents you from enjoying it too. Uh, same with, you know, you can imagine a private park or a golf course or things like that, where uh, up to some carrying capacity for the good, uh, a lot of people can enjoy it without bothering each other. Uh, so there's kind of a limited scope of uh, rivalry. And you can impose some, uh, say, club membership uh, to provide access to, to that good. So you can, you can fence off your golf course or you can you know, have people checking for membership and things like that. Uh, likewise, you might treat some things like, say, local public schools as a local club good where the, the municipality uh, is the club and you let people that live in the town go to that school but not people that live in other towns. Uh, and the schools uh, can handle a lot of kids at once. And so up to some carrying capacity of the school, uh, everyone can get the same benefits from the, the school without being strictly rival. Uh, and the excludability is just because you impose it via some rule. So you, you say that people the next town over can't come to the school. Are there reasons to think that club goods could be normatively desirable, at least in some circumstances? Absolutely. There's a whole bunch of stuff uh, that is either quite impractical uh, for you to provide for yourself. So require a whole lot of money to build yourself a golf course or even a, a swimming pool or a, a library for that matter. Uh, whereas uh, you might be able to get a bunch of people together uh, that want that thing, but it could be the case in your town or wherever you live that not everyone wants it. Uh, so it might be the case that you don't want to kind of make people that will never use the golf course to pay for it with their taxes. Uh, it's kind of unfair uh, in some sense to make other people pay for the stuff that you want that they're never going to enjoy. Uh, and so having a club lets the people that actually want the thing pay for it. Uh, and then they get to enjoy it amongst themselves without imposing costs on other people uh, who are uninterested in it. So club goods uh, and clubs more generally are a pretty good way of letting more people get more of the stuff that they want uh, without uh, kind of requiring that we have universal consensus over the set of goods that we all would be interested in. So this lets us deal with diversity in a kind of productive way. Uh, diversity of interest, diversity of uh, wants and needs can be spread out uh, via uh, uh membership in different clubs uh, instead of everyone providing the same things for everybody. Well, so great. That sounds like a libertarian utopia then, right? What's, what's the problem? Well, for some things, it works just fine. A private pool club is not the end of the world uh, in general. But where clubs can get complicated uh, is when we think about uh, both uh, the mechanisms by which they exclude and what are the goods that the, the club is providing. So in one paper where I'm investigating a theory of dynamic clubs, uh, I note that lots and lots and lots of clubs uh, uh, are much smaller than you might think they should be based on kind of economic theory, uh, thinking that people want to 
uh, get the most value out of something and pay the least for it. So if you have a pool club, let's say, where the carrying capacity of the pool is uh, 100 people, uh, but you have a club that only has 30 members, this should be weird uh, because those 30 members are paying roughly triple the price uh, that they have to. Uh, if there are more members uh, in the club, uh, the cost of uh, providing and maintaining the club would go down per member because uh, we can spread those costs around more people. And so people should be happier in that kind of case. They're, they're paying less for the same thing. That's, that's generally a good thing. Uh, but we find lots and lots of instances of things that are well below their carrying capacity. And these aren't uh, foolish people. These are people that are paying for, for something. And so uh, I suggest that one of the things that uh, very often clubs are providing uh, as a good for their members to consume uh, is the exclusive value of the membership itself. Uh, so being in a pool club might be fun. Being in an exclusive pool club might be better. Uh, same with golf courses, same with neighborhoods uh, that, say, restrict multifamily uh, housing uh, in that area. Uh, uh, same with public schools, same with Ivy League colleges, uh, a whole host of other things where there's actually plenty of money available uh, to enable more people to join the club. And that would be cheaper for all the members to do it. But what the members are valuing uh, is uh, the membership. And the value of the membership is uh, a function of how many members there are. And so the fewer the members, the more valuable the membership. This is something like a Veblen good. Uh, as the price goes up, it's, uh, it's more desirable. So does that present, as you see it, Efficiency concerns, equity concerns, or some combination of both, or maybe something entirely different? Well, so just that some people want to pay for exclusivity isn't on its own terrible. Uh, it's fine to you know have a small group of friends, say, instead of having lots and lots of friends. That's, that's okay. But where it becomes problematic is especially when we start thinking about whether certain clubs play an important civic kind of role. Uh, in our life. So, for example, uh, it might not matter if you have a really exclusive juggling club in your town. Juggling is just not a big deal for the political and economic elite. So if you set a high bar for membership to the juggling club, it, it's irrelevant. Uh, but if you close off membership to, say, the golf course where politicians uh, network and make deals... Uh, or the Rotary Club, where people get involved in civic activities, and then that's a ladder towards you know running for office or something like that. That becomes a much bigger deal. Uh, where uh, certain kinds of clubs uh, can uh, play an important role in both the private and public sphere. And so, just as Buchanan suggested that we ought to conceive of this sort of middle ground between things that are just private goods and just public goods. Uh, we might want to think about uh, associations not just being uh, purely private or purely public, but something kind of in the middle. Uh, and I think there are lots of mid-level associations uh, and clubs that have these sorts of features where they're, they're kind of private, but they're uh, uh, also playing an important role in, uh, in the public sphere as well. And so we might think that uh, uh, clubs that occupy that space and this can be, you know, which club that is might be different in different sorts of locations. Uh, 
we might think that those clubs uh, uh, might require some uh, different rules about uh, who gets to be a member and who doesn't. So I first encountered your work when you were discussing some of these ideas in relation to charitable organizations, which are often, I think, kind of, for better or worse, uh, conceptualized or theorized as effectively working in something that we conceptualize as kind of the public goods space. And you, I think, quite provocatively suggested that in some ways – what they're doing looks more like club goods. I wonder if you could talk about why you think that is and why you think that matters in relation to charitable organizations. Sure. So uh, a lot of organizations, whether they're things like colleges that are set up as nonprofits uh, or other organizations that have some sort of public uh, facing mandate, even even things like towns or, or kind of how we uh, think of membership to a particular nation, these are all organizations that uh, allow some members in, and they, you know, uh, if we're following that model that I was suggesting before, uh, kind of the first order economic thing that they should be doing, the, the first order economic choice they should be making is lowering the the per member cost of membership for whatever goods they're providing. So all all uh, clubs, whether theorized by say uh, Buchanan style reasoning or someone like Menker Olson. Uh, they they provide some set of benefits for their members to maintain uh, the membership pool, and they're often organized around those benefits. So, uh, you know, golf courses and, and uh, pool clubs or whatever are, are one kind of thing. But uh, if you think about, say, uh, elite colleges, uh, clearly that's what's going on as well. Harvard, for example, isn't exactly under a budget constraint for whether it can accept more freshmen each year. Instead, they're under a, a reputational constraint. They want to be as elite a school as possible. And so they restrict membership to drive up uh, how elite they get to be. Because one of the things they advertise is how low their acceptance rate is. And so what's especially interesting with something like Harvard is uh, it is vastly more restrictive now in terms of number of applications received versus number of applications uh, accepted than it used to be. Uh, but its current rate of exclusivity kind of uh, brings prestige back to the people that uh, went through the system when it was less restrictive uh, in terms of total proportion of applications. Uh, and so even the people that aren't presently there, but say are potential donors, have a good reason to kind of keep that prestige going. And so they keep the numbers lower than they need to be. Compare that to, say, uh, the University of California system, where if they get lots and lots and lots of people applying uh, to the UC schools, they either grow those campuses or open a new campus to better serve more students. Uh, Harvard could have made like four new campuses if it wanted to, but it doesn't. Uh, likewise, with a number of other elite institutions, part of the point uh, of them is to be elite, not to maximally generate knowledge or, or disseminate it. And that comes at a cost, right? They're, they're sitting on a pile of resources that uh, they only make available to uh, a narrower set of people uh, than they could have. Uh, but those narrow set of people benefit from this, this reputational shine that they get from being at such a uh, restrictive organization. So what does that tell us from a policy perspective. I mean, if we're thinking about how to regulate 
institutions and in particular institutions that are receiving public support in the ways that that charities do or even just legitimate legitimation the way that a club would how do we distinguish between a harvard and a juggling club that's a great question i think part of what's important here is uh uh it's not going to be like an a priori feature of the organization itself like we could imagine some strange world in which uh juggling was your path to political political success right I, it uh it just so happens that golf is the sport that people play when they network instead of juggling or uh playing ultimate frisbee or whatever it is so it just so happens to be the case that there are certain sports or certain kinds of activities that are culturally associated with uh, with networking that's relevant for, say, the uh, the public sphere and, and negotiating uh, some political power and things like this. And so, I think you can't pay attention to kind of just the the bare uh, a priori features of, of various clubs. We have to look at how they're embedded into uh, our civic order. And so. I think private clubs are absolutely fine. I have no particular problem with them. Indeed, most of my research here is uh, brought on by the fact that I do think that uh, there is something important about uh, clubs and the possibility for uh, you know, t sorting geographically uh, that is really important for uh, a way of resolving uh, democratic tensions where people just disagree about stuff. And if you're in a diverse enough country, you want ways for people to be able to satisfy their interests without being dominated by a democratic majority. And so clubs are, and other things are a way of, of doing that. They can kind of release some tensions uh, because we don't have to all agree with each other about uh, what kinds of public goods we want or, or which set of rules we all have to follow. We can choose to adopt some extra rules if we join certain clubs or associations, uh, and that's a good thing. But as I spent more time thinking about this, uh, this literature, I realized that clubs aren't quite the, the free lunch that uh, they might look like at, at first pass, where it's not purely a group internalizing the costs of the things that they provide for themselves. And so they can, they can bring on extra uh, problems. So one, one area that I think is really interesting is you can think about, say, homeowners associations. So homeowners associations, you can model as a kind of a club within some municipality, right? You can choose to live in a certain neighborhood that's governed by a homeowners association. And sometimes it's fairly innocuous. It just means that everyone is required to mow their lawn uh, to a certain height uh, on a weekly basis. And you have to keep things tidy and, and put some flowers out front or something like that. But sometimes the, the covenant restrictions of a homeowners association can be quite robust. And in addition, sometimes those homeowners associations provide themselves with club goods. So uh, sometimes it's something like snowplow service or maintaining a shared garden uh, or maintaining a common pool or something like that. And those are all, you know, again, uh, those can be perfectly fine and innocuous things. But where problems can start uh, arising is that sometimes homeowners associations are providing themselves with club goods that are uh, kind of a, a complement to what, say, town services are, but rather uh, a perfect substitute for the things that the town provides. Uh, and then 
they use their uh, better organization than people that are not in HOAs because they you know, have a corporate structure that uh, they're all engaged in. They can use their superior organization amongst themselves to politically lobby their municipality to not have to pay for uh, the goods that they've replicated. So uh, they can uh, get out of paying for the town pool or lobby against a, a pool's construction when they already have one. And so this to me uh, matters quite a bit because it's not a matter of, say, if you have uh, Alice, Bob, and Carol, where Alice and Bob want a pool, but Carol doesn't. Uh, Alice and Bob can get uh, the pool and Carol doesn't have to pay for it. This is the case where Alice and Bob and Carol all want a pool, but Alice and Bob want a pool that Carol's not in. And then they can prevent Carol from getting a pool and also get the pool for themselves, which seems uh, manifestly unfair uh, to Carol. Even though she's technically not paying for that other pool, she would have paid uh, for a pool, uh, but she was just out-organized by the other two. So it seems like clubs and club goods can be good or can be bad for equity and, and efficiency and, and democracy. I guess the, the question I have is, is, is this a problem democracy can fix? And if so, how? Well, I think uh, you're first, you're right to point out that, that clubs are in some sense, a neutral tool that we can use. And so they can, uh, they can be used to, to great effect and they can be used to, to ill effect. And it's worth trying to pay attention to what's going on with these different possibilities. So for sure, there are all kinds of voluntary associations that are fantastic. This is obviously uh, something that bumps up against some of our constitutional rights of association. Like we, we want to be able to have clubs and provide things for ourselves that we couldn't get on our own. And maybe is uh, not something that's popular enough to have the state provide. So it really does satisfy a crucial need that lets people get more things that they find valuable than they could provide on their own. And we can all democratically agree to in a broad, uh, diverse polity. So that's that's good. We, there's a good reason to want to allow this, this kind of stuff and encourage it, if anything. You can imagine something like the, the state as being a kind of market maker for people forming clubs. And that uh, that can be really valuable. That could make things better than uh, than how they are right now. But there are going to be certain kinds of clubs that that take on uh, certain sorts of social positions that play a kind of gatekeeping role in our public life. And where there is a more gatekeeping kind of role, we might think that we need to uh, think more carefully about whether it's okay that we treat these uh, institutions that favor kind of elite membership over, say, the provisioning of the good itself. So a possibility is thinking about different kinds of corporate forms that these uh, these clubs take, where if it's the case that you're you're kind of filling some sort of civic function, maybe you get some uh, uh, sort of tax benefit or something like that in exchange for an agreement about the kinds of membership rules that you're allowed to use. Uh, so all all goods uh, all clubs will have some kind of limit for how big they can get, just given the sorts of things they're providing. Harvard can't take on a million students every year. But surely uh, some of these things could be, you know, could uh, have a wider admission rate or more campuses or something like that that enable them to serve more people uh, at a time. 
and where there is this trade-off between uh, the value of, of the elite membership and uh, kind of blocking people from uh, from access to things that are beyond the point of the club itself, that's where it becomes problematic. Because so I don't want, in, in my work on this, I'm trying to be careful about uh, identifying the, the harm as not merely, at least in some cases, not merely that someone doesn't get to join a golf cl- course. You know, rights of association should have something to say about being able to choose to not associate with uh, with people as well. But uh, if that golf course is how you can start getting involved in politics, then it's hitting up against other rights that you have with regard to fair access to office and things like that. Uh, where it gets a bit more complicated, and I would start thinking that there is, in fact, a, a right to, uh, you have more of a claim on being a member uh, than not, is when we're looking at things like whether towns or neighborhoods get to set up to block uh, new entrants as neighbors or, or something like that, or as citizens. Uh, it's less clear to me that you get to, to pick who your neighbors are. I have no problem with getting to choose your friends uh, and all of that, but uh, getting to, ch- uh, to choose who lives near you at all is, I think, an entirely different matter. So, so I mean, it struck me reading your papers that it's like Harvard is a good thing, but the question is good for who? And it's hard to see a lot of appetite for change in the kind of distributional concerns that you identify insofar as more often than not, the people in a position to make the decisions about what those changes would look like and how they should happen are often the very same people who benefit from the Veblen goods that you identify. Like, isn't this kind of a catch-22? Like, how do we... How do we institutionally address or solve this conundrum? That's a great question. So I think there are, there are a couple of things you can do. So not that I think these are easy policy choices. So, so one is uh, you can try to just keep making more substitute clubs, and potentially one of those will end up taking the social position that uh, Harvard or something else might take, where you're, you're kind of intentionally trying to compete uh, on those grounds and, and bring over those those kind of secondary functions into some new thing. That's that's one option, and that's that's something that's historically happened uh, in a bunch of different areas of life where there's some dominant player, and the way to win is by playing a slightly different game. So maybe you don't uh, try to create a, a new golf course to compete with the one where all the elites are uh, uh, making deals with each other, but you make a tennis club or, you know, an axe-throwing club or a climbing club or whatever it might be that that might just create a new kind of networking uh, elite. That's that's one sort of possibility. The other one is what I gestured at a little bit earlier, which is it might be something you can do with uh, adjusting public policy. So it might be that for clubs to be able to keep the sort of uh, restrictive membership arrangements that they have, that, that alters their... Uh, their tax status, or in a more friendly version of it, if you weaken uh, restrictive uh, membership sorts of rules, there are some ancillary benefits that come with it. Uh, and you'd have to do more work thinking beyond just say, like, you know, tax advantages, what those ancillary benefits might look like. I think in general, there's a lot of room that we, we don't really take advantage of to play with alternative corporate forms for uh, not just firms, but uh, associations of various si- uh, sorts that are chartered 
uh, we can have more charter types than we do. Uh, and this is an area where I think more different kinds of charters uh, that offer different kinds of public benefits might be quite valuable here. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your papers and talking to you about them. There's some really provocative ideas in there that I'm hoping to incorporate into my own scholarship. And I really encourage readers to check out your work. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed uh, coming on and talking with you about it. Thank you.